We'll be in Mark chapter 6 again this morning. Mark chapter 6. It's been such a joy to go through the Gospels and look at the life of Christ. To walk this journey that he walked to the cross and uh, to his death and his burial and his resurrection and to see all the elements that led up to that and to be able to have a better understanding and, and um, to glory in the purpose that Christ set before him and that he accomplished on our behalf. It's been such a blessing. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And, um, you know, as we think about where we've come from these last few weeks, we've talked a lot about the, um, the purposes of, of the, the believers of Jesus Christ and the way that we uh, go out into the world and we serve. And, and oftentimes we find uh, great tribulation, not only personally with um, sufferings and sicknesses and disease and confrontation with other people in this world, um, almost like a, a daily spiritual traffic accident with a, a world full of sin, but we also face uh, other things such as persecutions, rejection, um, things that are, are difficult. And, and in the midst of those things, uh, Christians are faced with uh, the choice to cling to Christ, to rest in Christ, to uh, be satisfied in Him, to find our identity in Him, uh, to find great joy in Him, even in the midst of those fiery trials. And so again, as we've seen the providence of God and the way he has, he has uh, beautifully and, and perfectly written the word of God for us, um, we see the, we're kind of coming out of the thoughts of, of the suffering and the persecution and, and being reminded in our passage today of the satisfaction and the joy that we can find in Christ even in the midst of the difficult days. And let's just be honest, we're, we will face difficult days uh, until Christ returns. And so let this be an encouragement to us this morning as we look at what I've entitled this message, The Feast with Jesus. Mark chapter 6, we've looked at uh, Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Um, we've seen his family reject him. Um, we've seen his even uh, disciples and his people in his hometown begin to question him. Uh, we saw that he uh, sent out his disciples to perform and do great miracles. And, and, um, and in the midst of that, Mark kind of transitions uh, to this understanding of uh, who is Jesus. And, and he's, he's drawing his readers into the identity of Christ. And he, and he remembers the, uh, the, the story and, and, and accounts the story of King Herod killing John the Baptist as King Herod wrestled with who Jesus was. Uh, King Herod himself even questioned that Jesus was the risen, or yeah, that Jesus was, Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. Um, and ha last week we talked about how even in the life of John the Baptist, uh, it points fully to Christ being uh, what we, many people would call being the first Christian martyr and losing his life for standing up for truth. 
And now we transition to a very familiar story. And this is the, this is the comfort for us in the midst of those trials. This is the hope that we have in the midst of those trials. And the hope is that we are satisfied in Christ. When we have truly come to know him, we find our greatest satisfaction in him. And I hope this morning that you find the great satisfaction above all things in the Lord Jesus. Now, if we're honest, that's a daily struggle for us with our flesh. Our daily struggle is that we want to find satisfaction. We want to feast on the other things of this world, thinking that they will give us the nourishment, that they will give us the joy, that they will give us the hope and the satisfaction, and they always fall short. They always disappoint. And so what we want to look at today and be reminded of today that as Jesus Christ comes as the compassionate Messiah, he takes a crowd of people and he feeds them in this miraculous way. And it points to a great spiritual truth of the great spiritual feast that we enjoy in Christ now and for all eternity. So I want to look at three things today as I read. I want to look at Jesus' care for his disciples, his compassion for the lost, and his creation that brings him glory. Let me read this passage starting in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going. They, they had no leisure or opportunity even to eat. And they went away in the, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread And give it to them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray by your spirit this morning that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, that we would see this passage and Uh, learn greatly from it. And Lord, that by your spirit, you would show us areas in our lives where we rest upon and find our hope and our joy and our satisfaction in things of this world, and that we would repent 
that we would look to Christ, that we would rest in him as the one who gives what we need, the one who has accomplished what is needed in this world to be reconciled back to God. And so we find joy and, and, and strength in him today, and we worship and glorify his name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we begin, we think about um, this passage this morning, I, I, I think it's easy for us to see the transition from our previous stories where the, the disciples had gone out, he calls them apostles, and he sent them out. And now they're coming back in verse 30 to report to Jesus all that they had done. Now imagine for a second that they, they have gone out and they have done things that a lot of people in the church today wish that they could do. They were healing the sick. They were teaching people. They were uh, seeing the power and the authority of God on display in mighty ways. And now they're coming back to Jesus to report the things that they have uh, both done and taught. So we're assuming even from that passage in verse 30 that they didn't come back empty-handed. God had used them in mighty ways. There's nothing to report if they did nothing. So in other words, we know from this passage and other passages that the apostles had come back reporting great things that they had done in the name of the Lord Jesus, that they had seen his power on display in their own very hands, that they had spoken the the things of the kingdom and had spoken in such a way of authority that fishermen and tax collectors and and others would not have normally done or or felt compelled to do, and, and God used them in mighty ways. And so they come back um, to their shepherd reporting these things, and, and Jesus shows them great care. He says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. He is showing great care to his disciples, these men who are now being trained and, and are continuing in this training. And so a lot of this passage today is, is a training for the disciples, They've gone out. They've done great things. And now they're coming back and Jesus is teaching them another lesson, a lesson of rest. I can't tell you how excited I was as I'm writing this sermon to think about providentially this being Labor Day weekend and how easily this passage teaches us about the necessity of rest. It's not a lesson that we like to learn if you're a type A personality, oftentimes we struggle with rest. We think rest a lot of times is idleness, that we're not doing things for the Lord. Now, some of you may not struggle with rest. Some of you may not be listening to me because you're already thinking about your Sunday afternoon rest. I get it. I understand. But there are those of us in the world, maybe here today, that they have difficulty sitting still we have difficulty um, busying ourselves or, or, or ceasing to busy ourselves with uh, different things that need to be accomplished. And what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is making a great emphasis for his disciples and for us today to tell his disciples to take a break. We could say, in a sense, take a nap in Jesus' name. Because truthfully, 
We struggle with rest a lot of times in our, in our world because it's a theological problem that we have. It's not just a practical problem, it's a theological problem. See, when we don't rest, a lot of times it's because we think that we have the power to accomplish all things. And so it's a theological declaration when we rest to say that we are putting our trust in God and his work, even when we are not doing things in this world. Some people think, There's always something to do. There's something to do in ministry. There's something to do for my job. There's something to do for my kids' homeschool or or homework from class or, or whatever it may be. And we oftentimes think in our own mind, no one can do the job as good as I can. And we spread ourselves thin. We don't give our bodies rest to recharge. And we oftentimes don't effectively do the things that we need to do that are prioritized in our life in the best way because we are doing so many things, we can't give our best to all those things, which is impossible. And so Jesus, I think, takes this point to, 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 to see that his disciples are weary Even in his own humanity, he has shown us the necessity to take a nap on the boat, even in the midst of a storm. To sit down on the beach and have a breakfast with his disciples and nourish his body. And so rest is a theological declaration of our trust in God's rule and his work. And I would even go as far as to say that forsaking rest is idolatry. It is a worship of ourselves to think that we can do everything and all things and that we don't need anyone else. It is, it is, it is a declaration of independence to say that no one else is needed in my life to accomplish the things that need to be happening. I don't need anybody else. I have the strength to do it. I have the power to do it. And, and folks, that is a lie from Satan. We are created and placed in community. Even in a secular world, we need our neighborhoods. We need our, our families, our biological families. God has placed us with people. He did not leave Adam alone. He gave him Eve. He gives us uh, tribes and cultures of people. And the purpose of those tribes and those, those cultures is that he would raise up a people like Israel and that, that Israel would come to know and worship God and that they would go and they would spread his fame and his glory to other tribes and other communities. And so when we forsake rest, we are... We have fallen in such an idolatrous trap that we think we don't need these people. But instead, we can trust in God's work in our lives. Now, don't let this be an excuse for idleness. That's the other extreme. Oh, well, if God's taking care of everything, then I'll just be a fatalist. And I'll just believe that what's going to happen is going to happen, and I don't have to do anything. That's the opposite extreme. That's what lazy people believe. Find that, that equal medium that says, God uses me, 
But if I expend my efforts, if I wear myself out, then he can't even use me in a, in a proper way because I'm exhausted. So the best way for me to, to give him glory is to rest in him and to rest from my work so that I can recharge and physically do what he's called me to do. Maybe some of us need to learn passages like Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Take a nap in Jesus' name. Or as we read a, a, a couple months ago, the passage in Mark chapter 4, where it says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and he sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he's, he knows not how. That farmer's in there sleeping confidently, finding his rest, knowing That, hey, I've done what I need to do. I didn't just pray for a harvest. But instead, I did what was needed of me to do. I did it with excellence. I did it with my best. And then I trust God will do the work in in that effort. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the care that Jesus is having. This is lesson number four million for these disciples. It's, it's okay, you've learned how to do things in my, with my authority and with my power. I have given you this power to go out. You did it. You accomplished it. Now come back and learn a new lesson, the lesson of rest. And what a great lesson to learn when Jesus Christ finishes his life by hanging on a cross. What a lesson for the disciples to learn. Okay, you remember that lesson on rest? You remember that lesson that you learned where I told you to go and and isolate yourself and, and rest your body? Well, now let's have a theological lesson. Rest in me even when you don't understand. Rest in me when you can't accomplish what I'm going to accomplish by dying on the cross and providing forgiveness for sin. Rest in me. Rest in me. That's why Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 11 to these, these um, burdensome Jews who had these human traditions from their religious leaders heaped upon them like heavy yokes. Jesus says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, what, for your muscles? Rest for your brains? No, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a challenge that we have today to be reminded that as we labor in ministry and we labor in our neighborhoods and we labor in our community, there is a sense that there is so much work to do that we can't do it ourselves. We have to come together as a community of believers, as a church, to labor in this community. 
Maybe you live in a neighborhood with other believers. You can, you can labor together with those believers and to accomplish those things because you can't do it yourself. And in that laboring, understand and, and be reminded that there are moments and there are days that you need to rest. Because ultimately, we find rest for our souls in the Lord Jesus. I usually, 99% of the time, never call Adam on a Saturday or a Friday and say, Hey brother, I need you to, I need you to sing these songs Sunday. I don't do that. I give, we give Adam freedom to do those things. And so he starts singing these songs this morning, and I'm like, man, if I could have just chosen these songs, this is exactly the, the music I would have chosen. Because in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, another way of saying that we rest in the Lord Jesus is to say that we abide in him. Abide in me, and I is in you. John said, or Jesus says in John chapter 15, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I mean... When we rest in the work of the Lord Jesus, when we rest in his power upon the cross to atone for sin, when we rest in his, his glorious death and his glorious resurrection, when we rest in him, and it means that we are abiding in him, we are remaining in him. That everything that we accomplish in, in this world for his kingdom is by his power because we are remaining and abiding in him. And so the challenge for us this morning is not are we physically resting, but are, are we resting spiritually in him? Are we trusting in Christ? Are we still trying to go out there and, and make spiritual headway with, with uh, pleasing the Lord so that he would uh, find it in his graciousness to let us into heaven? Listen, if you're trying to do anything in the world to please God so that he will let you into heaven, you're not resting in Christ, you're less resting in yourself. Anything. If your prayer life is to please God so that it gains you access to heaven, you are living in a works-based religion and salvation. A person that rests in Christ rests in his work fully to accomplish everything that is needed. And so your prayer life and your obedience, your Bible study, the way you lead your family, all these things are not done because you want to please God to gain access to heaven. You do it, but you want to please God because you have access to heaven. Because eternal life is already yours. Jesus is already yours. And because you love him and you understand what he has accomplished and the blessings that you have received, you do those things not because you want to please him, because you are already pleased in him. Worship leader Aaron Keyes and Stuart Townsend wrote a contemporary hymn off of Psalm 62 that reads this. And I will not sing this, by the way. My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation. A fortress strong against my foes, I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse and lies like arrows pierce me.
I'll fix my heart on righteousness. I'll look to him who hears me. I'll set my gaze on God alone and trust in him completely with every day pour out my soul and he will prove his mercy. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too brief to measure, my king has crushed the curse of death and I am his forever. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, my delight and my reward, everlasting, never failing, my redeemer and my God. Dude, imagine for a moment that the most important person in the world, you fill in that blank, invites you to a meal at his home. It's a royal home, most likely. Whether that be the president or a, uh, the king of a country, and you are, you are invited in to come and, and, and you want to prepare yourself in such a way that is presentable to this king, to this ruler. And so you, you maybe buy a new outfit, get your hair fixed, do whatever you want to do because you want to present yourself in the best possible way. And as you go and you enter into this beautiful place, you, you, you can't imagine why you're here. Why you have been invited to this, there's nothing in you that deserves for you to be here. You have not accumulated or or attained any honor. It was just by the love of this king to invite you. And he invited you not because of what you'd be wearing, but because of his love to invite you, because of his choice to invite you. And you come in and, and you seat or you find your seat, maybe a little placard there with your name on it, and, and there you are sitting at the royal table. Meditate on that for a moment as a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, what I love about this passage in Mark is that it's implied that Jesus is not saying, hey, go somewhere away from me and rest. The implication is, come away with me and let's rest come away with me. Like, let's do this together. You've been invited by the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, the one who controls and has created all things. All all things were made through him and for him. And And he has invited you in to go from an enemy of God to the sons and daughters of God to feast at the table with Jesus. And so we should praise him. But not only do we look at the care of this disciples, the the care that Jesus has for the disciples, but the compassion for the lost. Now in this story, Jesus has uh, taken his disciples. They've gotten on a boat. They're going up north into the Sea of Galilee. Uh, near the, the town of Bethsaida and maybe even Tiberias. That's why if you read in, in some uh, accounts of this, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give this story in their Gospels. Some of them say the Sea of Tiberias. That's the same as the Sea of Galilee. And they're going and they're, they're traveling and, and they're kind of making their way maybe along the shore. And the people are so uh, desirous of being with Jesus and, and seeing miracles and, and, and his popularity has grown that they're running up the shore. They're running along trying to catch him. 
And they, and they, and they, and Jesus gets there and there's this crowd that is beginning to form. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to rest. They don't even get to rest. But they, they get there and, and they go along the shore and, and there is this great crowd. And what does it say Jesus does? He has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the, the context of this story is very important for Mark. You know, we, we've, we've read a lot in Mark. We're not following just Mark. We're, we're going through the different Gospels as a harmony. But we've been in Mark a lot. And, and hopefully you'll see in Mark and a lot of the other uh, writers the contrast that, that he gives us. So imagine for a moment, or not imagine, but read for a moment the comparison in this context. John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because he stood up for truth. And it was at his death that Herod the king was having a great feast. And that feast was personified by sin. There, Herod's daughter is is dancing in an inappropriate way for the political leaders that have gathered around. There, Herod's wife, Herodias, who he was married to in in an immoral way, was there plotting the death of John the Baptist. There, uh, Salome, the the daughter herself, is willing to do whatever it takes to please her mother and her her father. And so she's willing to even ask the king for John the Baptist's head on a platter. It's just the whole story is centered around a feast of sin. And what's the next story? Jesus going, feeding 5,000 people for the sake of his glory. Not a feast of sin, but a feast of truth, a feast of grace, a contrast between the immorality of Herod's feast and the beauty of this feast that we have thanks to the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second feast is it's as I said, recorded in all four of the gospels. And it's a miracle outside of the the resurrection itself that all four of these writers include John takes it even further and attaches it to Jesus' statements where he says, I am the bread of life. And we will get to those passages. But in John's uh, recount of this, he makes another connection that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't make. He says that it's uh, the, the feast of the Passover is near. So this is a time when the feast of the Passover is at hand. And, and if you said the feast of Passover to a bunch of uh, uh, people in Bartlett, in a church setting, it doesn't have the same effect as a bunch of Jews who were reading this account in John and they're going, oh, the feast of the Passover. When I think of the feast of the Passover, I think of Moses. And when I think of Moses, I think of the Exodus. And when I think of the Exodus, I think of God's salvation for our people, rescuing us from slavery, this whole wilderness wandering. And in the midst of the wilderness wandering, I think as a Jewish person, I think of what? Jesus is, or the provision of God for his people. Okay? Now all that's happening with just the words feast of the Passover. That's what the feast meant. 
recounting the provision of God, the way of escape, the way of provision. And so there, John says, connection. Don't forget, this is the, this is the, uh, the time that Jesus is feeding these people on the eve of the feast of the Passover. And why is that important? Because what a greater way to point as the, as the Messiah of God, the, the way to point to yourself, to your own deity, than at the feast of the Passover to feed people in a miraculous way and show them that you are God. The connection's even made three different times in our passage in Mark where the word is used where Jesus says, let's go away to a desolate place. And then it says, they go to a desolate place. And it's at that desolate place that Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the word in the original language in the Greek, the word desolate place translates wilderness. So you could really translate this another way. Let's go away to the wilderness. Let's go away to the wilderness and rest. Let's go to the wilderness. It's at the wilderness that Jesus feeds the 5,000. So again, you're reading, you're making connections, and what are you thinking about? It's in the wilderness that God provides for his people. Folks, these are not mistakes. This is the providence of the Lord Jesus Christ showing us and giving us this beautiful picture of him being the prophesied Moses, you could say that this is a better picture of, of that wilderness feeding and feast that God would give his people in the Old Testament. Think about it this way. The connection is always made of Jesus being the better Moses. In, Mo- in Numbers chapter 27... Moses says to the Lord, let the Lord, this is verse 15 through 17, let the Lord, the God of the spirit of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep or as sheep that have no shepherd. Implication, the people, the, Isra- uh, the people of Israel, they need a shepherd. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God was the shepherd that led Israel. That, that, and then he appointed shepherds to lead Israel. His people, his leaders. Moses was one of those shepherds. And so Jesus steps out in the forefront and says, and, and, it, and it's implied that, that Jesus is that shepherd. He is the one who fulfills Moses In a greater way. He is that greater Moses. Feeding the people. And how does he do that? Look in verse 34 of chapter 6 of Mark. He says when he went out. uh, uh, He went ashore. He saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to do what? Feed them? Nope. He began to teach them many things. I love that. What do these people need? If you're a shepherd and you're taking care of a flock of sheep, you you know that you are feeding them. 
You are caring for their wounds. You are protecting them and you are guiding them. They're wandering. They're, they're getting hurt and injured and they can't, they can't even treat their own wounds. They're not like a dog who licks their wounds and, and provides a sense of healing. They need complete and total care. And so Jesus, looking at their needs, is going to feed them, but makes emphasis upon their spiritual need to teach them. In chapter, 34, or chapter 6, verse 34, notice it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great cow. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, that's important. That's, that's a focus on, on time. So what you could translate that as, is you could say, he was teaching them many things for many, many hours. He was teaching them to the point that in this whole journey of traveling and teaching, time passed in a great way. So Jesus is emphasizing, teaching them many things, teaching them the importance and the understandings of the kingdom of God. And he's doing so in a long way. So when you want to complain about hour-long sermons at church on Sunday, understand Jesus is teaching many things for long periods of time, and that's just how it goes, right? But what is he teaching them? Well, by all accounts, he wants them to understand that he is the Son of God. John tells us that he is teaching them about the kingdom of God, and that's really all we know and understand. But Jesus could not teach about the kingdom of God without and, and separate himself from that. He was the, the fulfillment of that. He is inaugurating the kingdom. And so in John chapter 6, he begins to offend those that he is teaching, when they begin to ask him in verse 30, well, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? He says, our, uh, they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're talking about physical. He's saying, no, no, no. Let's go to the kingdom. Let's go to the spiritual. I am the bread that's come down from God. I am the bread of life, he says, for whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus is that bread of life. Jesus is the one that gives us nourishment. He, he has compassion for them, and so he teaches them. He teaches them the spiritual truths that they need to understand, that they are most satisfied, not in bread and fish, they are most satisfied in him. And when we become Believers, when we are transformed from dead sinners and given spiritual life in Christ, a resurrection in Jesus, then the very written words of God are the spiritual nourishment for our souls. 
They feed our new life in Christ because we have believed in Jesus and have risen from death to life. So we rest in Jesus. We find nourishment in him. But notice also that Jesus' compassion upon them is unconditional. I mean, that's the ministry of Jesus to begin with. We, don't, we, don't, we aren't always privy to um, what Jesus is thinking in his mind. We, we just see his actions. We have no idea of, of exactly what is going on in the mind of Christ. But look at his compassion is, is upon them, not because they deserve it, because they are worthy of it. It is unconditional compassion. And in his wisdom, that compassion manifests itself first in teaching and then in feeding. First in spiritual, then in physical. Because as the wise shepherd, he gives us what we need, not what we want. And be aware that these these people, this crowd of people were not asking Jesus for food. It's made clear that they wanted to see miracles. The disciples become concerned about their physical health. They need to eat. But it's Jesus who wants to provide for them. And it's fueled by his compassion. It's unconditional. This is a heavy message for our church. This is a heavy message for every believer in this world that wants to show merited compassion. I will give you compassion if you are worthy of compassion, if you receive compassion well. I will give you compassion if you qualify, if you meet some prerequisite. But the mercy of God and the compassion of God is given without strings attached. We love not because people receive love. Remember, Jesus showed his great love by loving us even while we were enemies of him. Sometimes I find this most difficult for me in my life with my family. You know, it's just hard to love your family sometimes. And it's, it's because of your, your biological connection with them that you find the most rationalization and reasoning for why they should be compassionate to you. Why they should show love to you. Well, we are connected. We are, we are family. We share the same DNA. But listen, if, if your family members are not believers, don't expect them to show the compassion of Jesus that you may show to them. They don't know Jesus. Jesus is a historical figure to them. If you want them to show the love of Jesus and they don't believe in him, then you should expect them to tell the truth like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln because those are also historical figures to them. 
So maybe they should act like these other historical figures. It doesn't make any sense. Kind of like that illustration. The point is, is that we can't expect them to show compassion to us. But if they're Christians, we should, right? Well, except for the fact that they're also sinners. And so in the same way, we want to show compassion to our family. And when they love Jesus, and, and those should, they should respond the same way that I would respond to them. And except the fact that you don't always respond, and I don't always respond the way that Christ would want us to respond to them. So ultimately, the truth is, is that we should show unlimited and unconditional compassion because of our love for Jesus, because it reflects him. Not because we get anything in return. And we can all agree that that's hard. (laughs) It's like, I can't do that. And that's why Jesus said, if you abide in me, if you trust in me, if you rest in me, You can do great things, but without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. So you're only going to be able to show compassion to people who are hard to show compassion to when you are empowered by the power of God to do the very thing that you can't do on your own. And as I was reading this and and struggling, I'm really just kind of preaching to myself here. I found the greatest reflection of my own life in the disciples. I love the wording, verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, hey, this is a desolate place, the hour's now late. You know? Send them away, send them into the surrounding countryside and villages. Let them buy themselves something neat. Let them fend for themselves. I'm tired It's late. These are all really good reasons, Jesus. These are really good reasons for me to stop loving these people. And Jesus says, nope, you give them something to eat. Jesus shifts the responsibility. The disciples are going, I'm really inconvenienced right now. And I'm really struggling to show compassion. And then Jesus commands them, their Lord commands them to do more. No, no, you give them something to eat. Hence, lesson number five. And that is, don't think that what I command you to do, I can't do. Because I can do the impossible. That's what Jesus is showing them. You still struggle with understanding who I am, so let me remind you, I'm going to command you to feed them but they become the complaining disciples. Jesus is the great shepherd showing compassion. They're the complaining disciples. Uh, I don't know if this can happen. Uh, This is kind of inconvenient for me. One of them who we're told is Philip even says, look, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? This is... He's basically saying, are you telling us to go and spend over a year's, over half a year's worth of wages to buy these people bread? That's how much money that is, over half a year. A denarii was a day's wage, that's 200 days wage. Not that they would have even had that money on them, but the question is impossible. 
And so that's why Jesus says it, to bring their attention to the fact that I can do the impossible. Rest in me, trust in me. I have invited you to myself. Believe that I can do what you don't understand or logically conceive can happen. Here's where this really challenged me. They had just come back from doing the impossible. And they had already forgotten. Don't you feel like that sometimes? Man, Tuesday is a, is a day of faith. And then Wednesday is, a, Wednesday is a day of doubt. Or Tuesday afternoon is a day of faith. But then Tuesday night is a day of sinful disobedience. You feel that way? I do. What grace that God gives us. What grace he gives us to remind us, like these disciples, that we must consistently, constantly walk and live and swim and rest in his grace. That it is all sufficient, that, that he has the power. He has the power to accomplish so much more than we can imagine. Remember, the disciples in the boat, in the midst of the storm, Jesus is asleep. Who has the better perspective? Jesus does. We must trust in his power to save marriages, defeat diseases, even glorify himself in suffering. He has the power to overcome circumstantial sadness, your financial woes, your unregenerate children, your habitual addictions. And that's just the physical. Most importantly, he is able to free you from the guilt of sin, allow escape from the wrath of God, reconcile you back to your creator, bring you into the royal family, give you a righteous standing as an unholy person, punish your sin upon his own innocent son, defeat evil and destroy death. We have no reason to fear or doubt this morning. Verse 38, Jesus shows his power on display, his creative power for his glory. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Five loaves, two fish. We know that story, right? And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the people. And he divided the fish, the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. If you underline in your Bible, I think you should underline verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. We're told that even 12 baskets full of broken fish, uh, of broken pieces of bread and a fish were collected. And then we're given a number, 5,000 men. 5,000 men. John tells us that they got the fish and the loaves from a young boy. And so we understand that because a young boy's there, he's not hanging out by himself, that there's more than likely families there. And if there's 5,000 men, there's probably close to 20,000 people. So if 5,000 doesn't amaze you, 20,000 should amaze you that Jesus Christ fed them with, with five loaves of bread and two fish. 
It's not just any bread either, by the way. It was barley. It was bread made out of barley. You know what barley is? Well, if you're gluten-free, you stay away from it. But it's the poor man's bread. Barley is what they gave the poor peasants and the servants because it was harder to digest and it, it wasn't as rich of nutrients. And so, in a sense, Jesus has taken the, the least amount of bread, the, 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 the poor man's bread, and using it to do a miracle. Which isn't that like our Lord Jesus to do that, right? In his state of humility. And in his creative power, you could consider this to be a little different than the way that, that the world itself was created ex nihilo out of nothing. Or you could say in a sense that even with five loaves of bread and two fish, Jesus is creating things that do not exist. He is creating. He's not, he doesn't need the elements of those five loaves and two fish to feed all these people. He could have easily not asked the question, do we have any bread and fish anywhere? I need something to work off of. Because he demonstrates to us clearly that he can give life to dead people, even life to himself. But if we uh, kind of parallel this back to the Old Testament and then we go forward to the New Testament, I love the beauty of looking back and seeing Jesus as the better Moses providing the food of, for the people scattered about. But in, in the Old Testament, remember the, the Israelites, they only got, got enough food for that day. And what happened to the leftovers? No leftovers, right? What happened to the leftovers? They would spoil and they would rotten. But what's happening in these leftovers? Jesus is giving in abundance. The, the leftovers are collected We're seeing this this new covenant, this new age come in where Jesus Christ is in fulfilling uh, fulfilling the things of the Old Testament. He is the better Moses. He's providing sustenance for the people. And there's this connection to the future for Jesus because What he does here before these people, where he takes the loaves, he blesses them, he breaks them, he distributes to the disciples, is exactly what he does the night before he dies upon the cross when he performs the Lord's Supper. It's like even in the way that Jesus is handling this bread, he is prophesying about his own death upon the cross, his own body that will be broken. And if we just read this isolated story, we never see that. But when we take the scripture as a whole and we understand that it all connects and it's all pointing together to Christ, we see the beauty of this passage pointing to the Lord Jesus, understanding his body being broken upon the cross. And because of that broken body and the wrath of God poured out upon him, that his body died, that he lost his life. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't just in a coma in the tomb. He, he, he didn't resuscitate. He resurrected from the dead. And because of that resurrection, we have hope in him. We have rest in him. We can fellowship and feast with him. And we will be satisfied. There is an abundance because of the work of Christ in his grace. 
That unconditional grace that we get, like these people sitting in these large amounts, these large groups of people. And there's this abundance. We are just receiving what we don't deserve. And the beauty is we don't even ask for it. So many of us want to give ourselves credit for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, if it wasn't for the work of Christ, you would not have asked for it. You're not sitting out with your hand going, I need to be saved. You are completely content in your own rebellion against God. And yet in his power upon display, he radically changes you from a dead man to new life in Christ. A grace that is overflowing like these baskets full of bread and fish. Because he is our shepherd. Because he is the one leading us and guiding us and providing for us what we need. Psalm 62 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. If you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, the Bible calls you the bride of Christ. You have been joined together in fellowship with your creator. You've been brought together by his marvelous grace. And so rest in him. Enjoy fellowship with him. Trust in him. Know that he is the son of God who can do all things and can defeat all evils and one day will return again. We will feast with him for eternity. We will enjoy his presence and be satisfied with him fully. And until then, until his coming again and restoring all things to himself, let us practice daily turning from our idolatry, finding rest for our souls in him and feasting in him for his glory.